Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 44 to 47 of The Story of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 44 The Dream of Xerxes Xerxes, the new ruler of Persia, looked every inch a king. He was tall and handsome, standing head and shoulders above the great warriors he led to battle. But although he looked a king among men, in character he was most unkingly, for he was both weak and foolish. It is true that he was sometimes good-natured, but it was not wise for his people to trust his temper, for he was often seized by sudden fits of rage when he would do deeds of terrible cruelty. In 483 BC, Xerxes put down a revolt in Egypt. Then his captain and kinsman, Mardonius begged the king to go to Greece to avenge the Persian defeat at Marathon. O king, said Mardonius, it is not seemly that the Athenians, who have done much wrong to the Persians, should not suffer for their doings. And now, will any one dare to face thee, O king? with thy great army from Asia and all thy ships. Sure I am that the Greeks are not so desperate, but if I am wrong and in their rash folly they come out to battle, they will find that of all men we are the bravest. To tempt Xerxes yet farther to do as he wished, Mardonius told him how fair a country Europe was, how rich in fruit and trees. Such a country, said the subtle flatterer, should belong to none save thee, O king. Mardonius hoped that if Greece was made a province of Persia, he himself would become her ruler. 
but while Mardonius urged one thing, Artabanus, the king's uncle, urged another. Thou, O king, said Artabanus, art going against men, who are said to be the most brave and strong, both by sea and land. And it is right I should say why we ought to fear them. Thou sayest that thou wilt make a bridge over the Hellespont and carry thine army through Europe against Hellas, and so we may be beaten either by land or by sea or by both, for the men are said to be strong, and it would seem that they are if by themselves alone the Athenians destroyed the great host that landed at Marathon. Now Xerxes was, as I told you, a timid king. So as he listened now to one, now to another of his counsellors, he did not know what to do. First he thought that he would go to Greece. Then he thought that he would not go. One night, while he still hesitated, the king had a strange dream. In his dream, a man, fair and tall, stood over him, who said, Dost thou repent, O Persian, from leading an army against Hellas, when thou hast charged thy people? to gather their hosts together. Thou doest not well in thy change of counsel, neither is there anyone who will forgive thee. Go thou on the road in which thou didst purpose to walk on the day that is past. When Xerxes awoke, he tried to thrush away the memory of his dream for he now wished to follow the advice of Artabanus and stay at home. But the next night, as he slept, he saw the same tall man who chided him from putting aside his words as though they had never been spoken. But be thou sure, he said, that if thou set not out forthwith, as thou hast become great and mighty in a little while, so in a little while shalt thou be made low. The king awoke from this second dream in sudden fear, and sprang from his bed. He bade his servants bring Artabanus to him without delay. When his uncle stood before him, Xerxes told his vision in feverish haste. Now if it be a god who sends it, said the king, and if it must be that an army go against Hellas, then the same vision will come to thee. The foolish king then begged Artabanus to put on his clothes, to sit upon his throne and afterwards to lie down upon his bed. At first Artabanus refused to do as the king wished, 
for he said, If the vision must come, it ought to come to me no more if I put on thy dress than if I wear my own, and if I rest on thy couch than if I sleep on my own. For that which comes to thee in thy sleep, whatever it be, is surely not so silly as to think on seeing me that it looks upon thee, judging by thy vesture. But at length Artabanus was persuaded to do as the king wished, and lo, when he had lain down on the royal couch, the dream of Xerxes came and stood over him, saying, Neither now nor hereafter shalt thou go unscathed, if thou seekest to turn aside that which must be. Then the dream appeared as though it were about to sear out his eyes with hot irons. Artabanus awoke in great fear, and leaping from the couch, he told Xerxes what he had seen and heard. From that night, Artabanus was as ready as Mardonius to urge the king to invade Greece. Chapter 45 Xerxes orders the Hellespont to be scourged. In the autumn of 481 BC, Xerxes led his fast hosts to Sardis. His warriors were of many different races, and each clad in the dress of the country from which he came. Each, too, was armed with his own weapon, and each talked his own language. So you can picture to yourself with what a strange army Xerxes set out to conquer Greece. From Sardis he sent heralds with an interpreter into Greece to demand from the people earth and water, the sign of their subjection to the great king of Persia. Themistosceles was so angry with the interpreter, who was a barbarian, for daring to utter the demands of Xerxes in the Greek language, that he ordered him put to death. Another messenger was then sent by Xerxes, and he brought with him gold to bribe the Athenians to join the Persians. Him also Themistosceles punished. Now that danger was near, the Athenians recalled Aristides from exile. They were afraid lest he join the Persians, for they knew that if he did so, many of his friends would go over to the enemy with him. But it was a needless fear and the citizens might well have trusted the exile not to betray his country. Even before he knew that his banishment was over, Aristides had begun to stir up the Greeks that were with him to fight against the Persians. Themistosceles too 
was using all his influence to persuade different states to lay aside the quarrels they had with one another and to fight together against the force that was coming to invade their land. Meanwhile, Xerxes, to avoid sailing across the Hellespont with his vast army, ordered a bridge to be built across it. But soon after the bridge was finished, a violent storm dashed it into fragments. When Xerxes heard of the disaster, his cruel and childish temper was roused. He ordered the engineers who had planned the bridge to be beheaded, and that was a cruel act. He also commanded that the Hellespont should be scourged with three hundred stripes, and that a pair of fetters should be cast into the sea, and these were foolish acts. He sent branders too, as some say, to brand the Hellespont, and he charged them to rebuke the water and cry unto it, O bitter water, thus doth the king punish thee, because without wrong from him thou hast done him harm. Before long a new bridge was built, with hedges planted on either side, so that the horses as they passed across might not be frightened by seeing the water. First of the great host came a thousand gallant Persian troops, followed by a thousand spearmen. The points of their lances were turned downward on the handles, where which held aloft shone golden pomegranates. Ten sacred horses with splendid trappings stepped behind the spearmen, while after the horses came a chariot dedicated to Zeus and drawn by eight white horses. No driver was allowed to mount the sacred chariot. He might only walk behind, holding the reins in his hands. Xerxes himself was in another chariot, surrounded by a thousand guards bearing spears, upon which glistened apples of gold. Ten thousand of the king's own bodyguard were named the Immortals, for, if one of their number was slain, or if one died, his place was at once filled, so that the number of the Immortals might never become less. As I told you, the Persian army was made up of different tribes. Ethiopians from beyond Egypt were there, clad in leopard skin, and carrying bows made of the central rib of the palm leaf, while their arrows were reeds tipped with sharp fragments of stone. They carried as well spears, pointed with gazelle's horns or knotted clubs, 
half their body was painted white and half red before going into battle. Some had no arms but only a lasso and a long knife. Others bore staves that had had their points hardened in the fire. From Caucasus came wild tribes that had no armour to protect their bodies and only wooden hats to guard their heads. Xerxes's army was indeed vast, but with so many half-clad and but poorly armed barbarians in the ranks, he would, had he been wise, have feared to face the small but well-armed and well-trained forces of the Greeks. On the shore of Hellespont, a throne of white stone or marble was placed, and here Xerxes took his seat to watch his army cross the bridge which led from Asia into Europe. But before the vast host began to move, Xerxes poured wine from a golden cup into the sea and prayed to the sun that no harm might happen to him, which might prevent him from conquering all Europe. Then he threw the cup into the Hellespont with a golden goblet and a Persian dagger. It is said that the king called himself a happy man as he watched the countless numbers of his troops crossing the bridge. But soon after, Artabanus was amazed to see him burst into tears. O king, he said, thou doest strange things. Even now thou didst call thyself happy, and yet thou weepest. Thought came upon me, and sorrow for the shortness of the life of man, answered Xerxes, because after a hundred years, of all this great host, not one shall remain alive. When the army had crossed the bridge, it marched on towards the plain of Thessaly, while the fleet sailing round the southeast point of the same country, anchored near the pronometry Magnesia. Here it was as near to the army as it was possible to be. Not long after the fleet had anchored, a sudden storm arose, and for three days did much damage to the ships. The Greeks, meanwhile, had been preparing to fight the invaders. They had sent spies to Sardis to find out not only the numbers of the Persian host, but its metal. As it chanced, the spies were captured and were on the point of being put to death when Xerxes ordered them to be brought before him. When they stood in his presence, he demanded to know why they had ventured into the camp of the enemy. On hearing the reason, 
he bade an officer show them the strength of his army, and then send them back unharmed to their own country. For, said the king, if the spies had been killed, the Greeks could not have heard beforehand of all my great might. Yet it would do them but little hurt to slay three men. But now will I have no trouble by marching against them. When the spies have already told of my mighty army. So confident was the king that he would conquer the enemy without difficulty, that when the vessels filled with corn sailed past his fleet on the way to Athens, he would not allow any of his ships to pursue them. Whither are they sailing? asked Xerxes when the corn ships were pointed out to him. To thy enemies, O king, laden with corn, answered his anxious counsellors. Why, we are going thither also, said the king. What harm do they do by taking corn for me? Now that the Persians were actually at hand, the Spartans and the Athenians summoned the Greek states to a council of war to be held at the Isthmus and Corneth. But some of the states were afraid, and instead of attending the council, they sent earth and water to Xerxes. Thessaly, in the north, would be the first to suffer from the invading army. So a Greek force was sent to the pass of Tempe, between Mount Olympus and Mount Ossa, to try to stop the advance of the Persians. But there were other ways by which the enemy could slip past the Greeks, so after a time they determined to withdraw from Thessaly. The northern people, being thus left defenceless, hastened to submit to Xerxes while there was still time. Chapter 26 The Bravest Men of All Hellas Through the pass of Thermospole lay the entrance from the north to the south of Greece. It was this path that the Greeks determined to hold against the Persians when they withdrew from the pass of Tempe. The pass of Thermospole was about a mile long, and the narrow road ran between the mountains and the sea. At each end of the pass, the mountains were sheer cliffs, descending so close to the sea that the only pathway was a mere strip of sand. To enter the pass, at either end, it was necessary to go through a narrow entrance called Pile or the Gates. In the road between Pile or Gates, there were hot springs. The Greek word for hot is thermos 
and that is how the pass came to be named Thermos Pilae, or Hot Gates. At the narrowest part of the pass stood an old broken down wall, and this wall was repaired by the order of Leonidas, king of Sparta, that it might form a defence against the enemy. A short distance from the mainland lay the island of Euboea, the strait between being at one place only two and a half miles in breadth. Here the Greek fleet took up its position under the command of the Spartan Eurybides, Themistosceles being second in command. Themistosceles would have held the chief command had not some of the states refused to serve under an Athenian admiral. The land army was led by Leonidas, one of the kings of Sparta, but because this was now the month of June, 480 BC, the time when the Olympic Games were held, many of the Spartans did not march with Leonidas to Thermopylae. For although the country was in danger, the games, being also religious rites, must be held as usual, and numbers of brave soldiers stayed at home to take part in the festival. When Leonidas set out on his march to defend the entrance to the south of Greece, he had with him only three hundred Spartans. On the way to Thermopylae, he was joined by troops from other states, so that when he reached the pass, he was at the end of seven thousand men. Now that there was only one narrow hill track by which the enemy could reach the rear, and strangers to the country were little likely to find it, Yet Leonidas bade the Phocians, who lived in the district, guard well this narrow footpath. He would leave nothing to chance. When Xerxes, with his great army, reached Thermopylae, he was told that it was in the hands of a small band of Spartans under King Leonidas. The tidings did not disturb the Persian monarch. He was sure that the Spartans would soon leave their post when they saw his great army. But the Spartans did not retreat, although they could see plainly the vast hordes that came against them. By and by, Xerxes grew impatient and sent a horseman to reconnoitre. The horseman could not see the Spartan camp, for it was hidden by the old wall that had been repaired, but he could see the men themselves without the wall. Their arms were piled up against it in stacks, as though no enemy were near. Some of the soldiers were wrestling with each other, Others were combing their hair as if they were getting ready for a festival rather than a battle. 
The Persian was astonished at what he saw. As the Spartans took no notice of him, he stayed to count their number, and then rode quietly back to tell Xerxes all he had seen. Xerxes, too, was amazed. Why should soldiers trouble to comb their hair before fighting? Why should they wrestle with one another as though no danger lay before them? He thought that they were doing childish and silly things, for he did not understand that this was the Spartans' way of getting ready either to die or to slay their enemies. In the Persian camp was an exiled king of Sparta, named Demaritus. Xerxes sent for him to ask why his countrymen wasted their time, wrestling and combing their long curls. These men, answered Demaritus, were here to fight for the pass, and when they have to face a mortal danger, their custom is to comb and deck out their hair. Be sure then, that if thou canst conquer these, and all the rest who remain behind in Sparta, there is no other nation which shall dare to raise a hand against thee. For now art thou face to face with the bravest men of all Hellas. But Xerxes laughed at the thought of a small band of men like the Spartans, daring to fight against his great army. He dismissed Demaritus and sent to demand the Spartans should give up their arms. But the only answer that Leonidas sent back was to bid the king to come and take them. It was plain that the Spartans did not fear the enemy. When one of them was told that the Persian host was so numerous that the flight of their arrows would darken the light of the sun. He answered carelessly, So much the better, we shall fight in the shade. For four days Xerxes waited, expecting the Spartans to flee, but on the fifth day they were still there, wrestling and combing their hair as before. Then the king sent a band of soldiers to the enemy's camp, bidding it take these bold Spartans alive and bring them bound into his presence. But the Persians could not push their way through the narrow gates which were guarded by the enemy. They were not only kept at bay, they were thrust back again and again and many of their numbers were slain by the long spears of the Spartans. Chapter 47 The Battle of Thermopylae Xerxes looked on while his soldiers fought at the entrance to the Long Pass, and they did their best for they were unwilling that their king should see them beaten back 
by men who had spent their days in games or bedecking their hair. But they could not stand against the fierce attacks of the Spartans, and at length, when many of their number had been slain, they withdrew. The king then ordered his own chosen bodyguard, the ten thousand famous immortals, to advance against the gallant defenders of the pass. Even at the approach of these renowned warriors, the Spartans did not waver. They pretended to flee, only to turn and slay the barbarians who had followed them into the pass. At length, after a furious conflict, the immortals were forced to give way and return to their camp. Three times as he watched his immortals, Xerxes sprang from his throne, thinking that all was lost. But the next day, he sent them against the foe once more, for now he believed that the Spartans would be too weary to fight. But Leonidas was careful of the little band he commanded. It was easy to hold the pass with only a number of small men. As each company grew tired, the king ordered it to withdraw and sent a fresh one to take its place. Soon the entrance to the pass was choked with dead bodies of barbarians. Some of the most valiant of Xerxes' warriors were next sent against the enemy, but they were cowed by the bravery of the Spartans, and as they saw their comrades falling around them, they turned to flee. Then their officers drove them back with lashes. For two days, the terrible slaughter never ceased, and Xerxes was almost ready to leave the pass to its brave defenders, so hopeless seemed the task of taking it. But that night, a Greek named Aphialtes came to the great king, and for a large sum of money, he offered to show the Persians a path which led over the hill down to the pass of Thermopylae. The path was the tiny track that was guarded by the Phocians. The offer of the traitor was at once accepted, and at midnight Xerxes sent his officer, Hydarmes, at the head of his immortals, to follow Aphialtes. All night long they followed the path with the mountains on the right and on the left. The day was dawning when they reached the peak of the mountain, and there the thousand Phocians were keeping watch and guarding the pathway. While the Persians were climbing the hill, the Phocians knew not of their coming, for the whole hill was covered with oak trees, but they knew what had happened when the Persians reached the summit. Not a breath of wind was stirring, and they heard the trampling of their feet 
as they trod on the fallen oak leaves. No sooner had they heard that the arrows of the immortals were pouring in upon them, they fell back, leaving the pathway free, while they hastily put on their armour and prepared to fight to the death. They did not dream that the immortals had no wish to fight them, but so it was, for the Persians took no more notice of them, but finding the hill path free, they sped downward to the pass to take the Spartans in the rear. The Phocians were left alone on the heights almost before they were aware. Leonidas had heard of the treachery of Ephialtes soon after the traitor left the Persian king. He knew that to try to hold the pass now, he would be attacked in the rear with certain death. Yet the brave king did not hesitate, for his orders had been to hold the pass at all costs. Nor did he waver as he remembered the ominous words of the oracle. Sparta must be overthrown, or one of her kings must perish. It seemed that he was the king who was doomed to die, but what of that if his country was saved? He resolved that to Sparta alone should belong the glory of the defence of Thermopylae. So while there was still time, he sent away all his allies, keeping with him only his three hundred Spartans, seven hundred Thespians who refused to leave him, and four hundred Boeotians, lest they should join the enemy. Then, when the sun arose, Xerxes poured out wine to the gods and the barbarians arose for the onset, and the men of Leonidas knew now that they must die, but they would die fighting, and before they were attacked in the rear, they would do great deeds. Fierce and desperate was their defence, and before the fury of their blows, the barbarians fell in heaps. Once again, the Persian officers, armed with whips, had to drive their men forward to face the small but undaunting band. In the confusion, many of the great host of Xerxes were pushed into the sea, while many more were trampled to death by their comrades. So furious was the struggle that at length the spears of the Spartans were broken in their hands. In a moment they had seized their swords and hundreds of Persians fell before their terrible thrusts. But now the worst that could befall the Spartans happened. Leonidas, their brave King Leonidas, was slain where he fought in the forefront of the battle. A terrible struggle at once began for the body of the king. Four times the Spartans drove back the Persians, and then, with one tremendous effort, 
they carried away the body of their king. It was at this moment that the immortals, led by the traitor, Ophialtes, reached the pass. The Spartans hastily withdrew behind the wall, which had been repaired by the order of their king. Here, on a hillock, they defended themselves to the last, such as had swords using them, and the other resisting with their hands and teeth, till the barbarians, who had in part pulled down the wall and attacked them in front, in part had gone round and now encircled them upon every side, overwhelmed and buried the remnant which was left beneath showers of missile weapons. As you read the story of the brave defence of Thermopylae, you do not wonder that Leonidas and his three hundred Spartans have won for themselves immortal fame. On the hillock where the little band took their last stand, a stone lion was placed in honour of King Leonidas, while in the pass itself a pillar was erected on which were written these words. Go, tell the Spartans, thou that passest by, that here obedient to their laws will lie. When the battle was over, Xerxes ordered his men to search for the body of Leonidas. When it was found, he ordered the head to be cut off and the body to be hung upon a cross. It was the custom of the Persians to honour the bodies of those who had fallen fighting bravely against them. This unusual and cruel treatment was but a proof of the fear the brave Spartans had inspired in the heart of Xerxes. Nor could the king forget that he had been on the point of leaving the pass in the hands of its brave defenders. Demaratus could not look at the slaughter of his countrymen unmoved. He had seemed to be a friend of the great king. Yet now he longed to warn the Spartans, who stayed at home, that the Persians were ready to march against them. But how could he send a message unknown to the Persians? He soon thought of a strange and less cruel way than had Histaeus, who, if you remember, branded his secret on the head of his slave. The exiled king took a writing tablet and scraped away the wax on which the letters were usually engraved. On the wood beneath, he scratched the message he wished to send. He then poured melted wax on top of what he had written, and the tablet looked as any other tablet looked. When it reached the Spartan people, they studied it with amazement. There was a tablet, but where was the message? They turned it this way and that. They peered at it now on one side, now on another. Nothing was to be seen. Then Gorgo, 
whom you heard of last as a little maiden of eight years old, gave the people advice as wise as she had given her royal father long before. She was grown up since those days and had been married to brave King Leonidas. Scrape off the wax, she said to the people, and see if the message lies on the wood beneath. And then this was done, and there stood the warning words of Demaritus, so that all might read.